Hello from the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain here at MIT's Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Jonathan Askin, I'm a law professor at Brooklyn Law School. And I'm Professor Alex Pedlin, I'm a professor here at MIT. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain. Today we're talking about AI and Blockchain with Professor Sandy Pentland. Now I should preface this a bit with uh, a couple stories about Sandy Pentland and uh -oh. my experiences here at the Media Lab. I'm traditionally, I've been a law professor for 10 plus years. And I had heard rumors that there was potential for technology to start to disrupt the law and the careers of my students and graduates. And one of the main pioneers has been Professor Pentland and his crew, his diabolical crew here at the MIT Media Lab. I thought it was best for me to understand what was going on here at the MIT Media Lab and how they might change the legal profession forever and the careers of my students and graduates. So I embedded myself here about two years ago at the Media Lab to figure out the ways of these mad scientists. And now I guess we're here speaking to the chief mad scientist <laughs> of them all. Uh, so Professor Pentland, maybe you can give us a little bit of background on your history and how that turned into, how you turned a, a glance on the legal profession and how you think you and scientists and technologists and big data scientists are starting to explore ways in which you can use your experience to disrupt and transform society, the law and legal process. So thanks. Um, so there's really sort of two threads. I mean, first to begin with, I've been at this sort of stuff for a long time now, starting with AI and data science, long before it was the big popular thing that it is today. And we were some of the first ones to realize the amount of data that would be available from cell phones and things like that. And so I became concerned um, about two things. One is the whole world will become datafied. All of the procedures, the permissions, the things that we used to do on paper or face-to-face -face will become automatic. And that's great for efficiency, it's great for reducing corruption, but where are the people in all of that? How do you get the exception? How do you get the sense of justice built into there? So that was one thread. Um, and I talked a little bit about that this morning. Uh, we could talk more about that. But then the second thread was I became engaged in the discussion on privacy and I actually ran the discussion at Davos, the World Economic Forum, for many years. And I realized that this was different than a lot of the things in computer science because it wasn't about the technology. It was about how technology interfaced with law. So you had to begin to understand what would change in law, what would change in technology, where was there a marriage between the two rather than just taking law as given or taking the technology as a given. Yeah. So about 10 years ago, when I first started exploring these issues, a couple of, I don't know if they were in your lab or not, but a couple of MIT engineers came to me and my students and said they wanted to build a platform that would automate the creation of legal documents. It sounded anathema to me as someone trying to train lawyers to go to big law firms and to create legal documents. So I was scared to death. My first reaction was, are you kidding? Get the hell out of our school. <laughs> my second reaction, I took a breath, and my second reaction was, well, it sounds like this is inevitable. Isn't it better for us to train law students to understand the inevitability 
of technological application in legal space, and shouldn't we be among the schools training our law students to embrace it? When I first came here two years ago, it seemed like a lot of this was very new. We ran a few events here at the Media Lab, uh, and it was essentially a bunch of lawyers and scientists living in a little bit of an echo chamber. Here today, I'm looking around, it looks like something changed, something dramatically different happened over the past two years, and it looks like now there is an understanding, at least among lawyers, that technology is going to invade our space, and they are here at the Media Lab trying to figure out what the role is of the lawyer in this new evolving space. You had mentioned a little bit about maintaining the humanity. What do you see as the role of lawyers in a world where technology, AI, blockchain technology, can do most of that which a lawyer had done historically? You know, there, this is a glass half full sort of phenomenon. You can look at all of the things that lawyers traditionally do being automated out of existence. At the same time, what you're talking about is a real sea change in what is sort of the primary goal of the profession, which is access to justice, right? You're going to be able to see tools that mean that many more people can get much more access, do things, and what that will do is force lawyers to take on the things that aren't standard. Because AI, wonderful, powerful, it doesn't do very good with exceptional cases. It does terribly with new stuff. So we live in a world that's changing rapidly, a, a world where the exceptions may become something that is outweighing the norm in terms of impact, if not number. And I think the law needs to migrate to that way of thinking about things. So what I'm saying is law has to be much more creative, much more about impact. Um, from a computer science point of view or some of the other professions, it means you have to become much more architects and less bricklayers. And I think on whole, that's probably a good change but obviously it's going to be painful in the middle. Well, I should tell you, that's a very refreshing uh, analysis from my perspective. When I graduated from law school, I went to big law. I spent two years of my life being a bricklayer, doing things which my, were completely anathema to what I thought my legal training was about. I love to think that law is one of the few professions, or perhaps one of the last professions, that will not be totally disrupted by artificial intelligence. When I think about what I learned in law school, what I try to teach my law students, what we're supposed to be learning in law school, it's supposed to be doing precisely that which the computer cannot do. I love the fact that the computer is great at separating ones and zeros, black and white, uh, yes and no, working in those areas. What we train, I think, what I hope we train our lawyers to do is to work in that gray area the area, the subtle nuances that the computer cannot do. So it's my thought and belief that, yes, lawyers ultimately, if they understand the sophisticated training they're supposed to get in law school, to think and analyze and synthesize information in a way that the computer can't, we're going to be the perfect partner for our AI uh, yeah. collaborators. Yeah. The computers will do the ones and zeros, and we will do that subtle, novel stuff that we haven't or not able to train the AI to do. Except that that sort of, that's true, except that papers over the fact that that transition from today's structure to one where the humans are doing the creative part has a lot of bumps along the way. And it also means that the practice of law, the practice of regulation, is going to change ever faster. So everyone says, oh my God, it's changing too fast. As things become automated, essentially as you have power assist for doing things, that means things will change 
even faster. Mm. So you can look forward to an accelerating future, although it will be very interesting at the same time. So it sounds to me like there is an opportunity for young lawyers who aren't steeped and baked in the old ways of the profession to figure out new and agile systems to participate in this ever-changing world. Well, that's one of the most promising things I see is I see a lot of young lawyers who are fairly tech-savvy. That doesn't mean they're programmers, but they mean they understand it and understand how the tech industry works. And they're excited about the possibilities and they're doing things which I think are almost entirely positive, but are going to cause a lot of reorganization to happen. I saw a very different type of lawyer coming at least to my law school after the economic meltdown, after the law firms had started to dismiss young attorneys around 2008. I thought it was a difficult time. It turns out I think it was a blessing in disguise. Mm. Around 2011, so we got this new generation of law students who came in and knew that they weren't necessarily going to be welcomed into the bosom of large law for the next 50 years of their career. Right. What we got in law school were students who wanted to get that legal skill set to deploy and play a role in this new evolving world. So we got, I think, much more courageous attorneys, law students who were yeah. willing to experiment in a way that their predecessors hadn't. As a result, we created something called the Legal Hackers Movement. And that came out of the fact that they weren't getting jobs at law firms. They had to sort of self-evolve and figure out their own path in right. much the same way that graduates from the Media Lab have to figure out what their role in this ever-changing world was going to yeah. be. Uh, what opportunities do you see for young lawyers coming out of law school? Do you see particular technologies that they should probably learn as they learn the law to play a more vital role in the changing world? Well, there's a class of people that are actually building technology. They're not inventing new algorithms, but they're applying AI algorithms to do standard tasks or, or do them better. There's advisory programs and things of various sorts. So, I mean, there's this whole sort of tech side of things. On the other side, I think there needs to be discussions like the one going on around us, which is what is the role of lawyers and law in society? Because that's got to change relatively quickly. And who else to sort of advance that than young lawyers? To sort of say, well, we need to have experimental space. We need to have ways where we can try out new ways of acting and doing things. That creation of spaces, which I call living labs, mm -hmm. so is I think a really critical thing, because you can't just say, oh, it'll work this way. You actually have to try it and see how it works. You have to be much more experimental, which means you have to be provisional, you have to be evaluative about the process, none of which is terribly baked into the whole system at the moment. So those need to happen quite a bit more. So part of the problem, historic problem, with legal pedagogy is that we have trained lawyers to never say anything until they're absolutely certain. Cross every T, dot every I. That is not the way the startup world works or the scientific no. world works. You get it out there and then you reiterate and reiterate and reiterate until it's perfect. Right. We've had a lot of trouble sort of training our young lawyers with that hacker startup spirit. Yeah. But what I do think is good about law students is, I think in this new world, they've, they seem to function well as project managers, sort of smart generalists who know how to bring the disparate pieces mm -hmm. together. Do you see that as an opportunity for young lawyers to essentially be project managers, working with technologists, working with others? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's, that's clearly a, a path forward. 
I guess what I'd like to see is I'd like to see the law profession create essentially safe harbors, places where you can try doing things differently. And if you screw up, it's not some horrible disaster. I mean, unless you actually hurt people. Or so something that's a like great that. segue into the policy, regulatory, governmental sphere. Lawyers and government have been trained historically to say, no, that violates the law. Hang on, do not do what you're doing. Right. We see all these uh, companies coming on board who do it and then ask for forgiveness later. Uber right. and Airbnb, sort of the most uh, uh, visible examples, examples of it. I think what I've seen, and I hope you've seen it too, is have you seen a change in policy maker circles in which they've tried to embrace the new technology and stay ahead of the curve so that they can be prepared so that when the next Uber or Airbnb comes on the horizon, they've got a regulatory policy framework that can embrace them while still trying to preserve the public good? Well, I think unfortunately the only places I see that are in places outside the United States where they feel real pressure to create something new to change. So two examples that I'm personally involved with are Estonia, which is a new country. It's in the EU. It used to be part of Russia. They feel that digital is their future because they have essentially no natural resources. And so they've created digital identity. Their whole government is logged on blockchains. They are, in many ways, by far the most advanced government legal system around. But they're a tiny little country. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting to see what they're doing. But then the question is, is how do you apply that to larger things? The other one that's really interesting is China, where over the last 20, 30 years, they have completely revolutionized their society. It is still a society of haves and have-nots but at least they have a bunch of haves now. They didn't have that 30 years ago. And what they've discovered is, is they need to change the rules constantly and dramatically to keep up with the changing environment. Mm -hmm. So they're just beginning to think about the problem of having laws, because before it was all regulations proclamated by the party. Now they're beginning to ask, well, what would be a more stable framework? And so they're trying to actually invent law in a different way than you would say in this country. When I graduated from college, I had studied Chinese. And part of the reason I had studied Chinese was because they got a billion people, they had a thousand lawyers. I mm -hmm. thought, this is an opportunity. I missed that boat. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but does it matter that Estonia is geographically so small? I mean, I and my friends and colleagues have all thought about becoming e-citizens of Estonia. Right. If you're geographically small, you can still be virtually global. Well, the, Estonia is showing the evaporation of borders, but think about what that means legally, right? It means that all sorts of things are no longer confined along the ways we defaultly believe. So when I was, I keynoted the EU presidency in Estonia, and the key thing was, how do you get these data systems, which are the backbone of their legal system, how do you make them operate across different jurisdictions? And you know, the, the characteristic example is you have an autonomous vehicle that drives from Germany to France, and all of a sudden it crashes because you can't move data from Germany to France. Or how do you get uh, informed consent you know, 
for the car to get the data that keeps it from crashing, or there's a whole series of questions where the traditional categories of jurisdiction and rights and things like that are different because it's in this digital world, not in the physical world. There isn't consistency across the physical world. How are you going to allow for a multiplicity of laws that cooperate with each other to make the real world seamless? So this is a conference on AI and blockchain. Over the course of the day and over the past couple of years, we've heard this term called smart contracting. Mm -hmm. That's a scary new term for a young lawyer, an old lawyer, a law professor to understand. Do you see a role for blockchain and this concept of smart contracting to well, play a the role? The general here? notion of smart contract has been around for a long time. It's essentially an algorithm that executes conditional on certain things happening, okay? And that looks like a contract. And what people are beginning to do is conflate traditional paper contracts with legal force with these algorithms that may do exactly the same thing. And so the question comes up is, well, the algorithm is really good because it's precise and it doesn't have corruption as part of it, and, and particularly for all digital things, it's very appropriate. But how do you mirror that back to the traditional framework in a way that's legally enforceable? And, and what does that mean even? Right? I mean, in many cases, um, you can imagine things that happen in contract land that don't happen in physical land. How do those go back and forth? But it's clear that to get the advantages of digital, the efficiency, the lack of corruption, the transparency, you need to somehow marry traditional legal practice with the execution of programs. So to the extent that these smart contracts can create self-executing agreements across the globe, is there a role for lawyers? Are you suggesting perhaps that lawyers need to learn Solidity and uh, Java and other no, coding no. languages? So the, for instance, we're uh, commissioned by the government of France to set up uh, two demonstrators in two different countries that combine data and permit things like this. But one of the key items is having um, human governance of the system. So when you build a system that allows for these execution of, of these contracts, you have to have a way of monitoring what went in, what went out, what was the decision, and have that referred back for, to, to human stakeholders for um, essentially oversight. Mm. Because the contract can't know if this is actually something that's fair or discriminatory. It can't know if it feels right to put it in a sort of a generic way. There has to be a connection to the human side. And I think the obvious way, or at least the way we've decided that's obvious, is there has to be um, monitoring of things where all of the inputs and outputs are written down in a blockchain so it's not corruptible and a mechanism for human stakeholders, oversight committee, to be able to review them frequently, to be able to ask, is this doing what we intended? And so, so that's the role of the human in these systems. So there's been talk about creating AI legal agents, corporate en uh, entities run by AI. You, did you ever see a world in which some combination of blockchain-created corporations and AI directors and officers no, I mean, actually can... So the, the ways that people are talking about it that are sort of most sensible in the current context are AI as advisor. Um, and why not? You use books as advisors. 
probably in 1400, it was seen to be heretical to use books as advisors because, you know, we'd never done that before. So I think that will happen. Um, the liability and, and the responsibility still lies with the human in that case. And then the part that's going to increasingly happen is autonomous things. So as uh, contracts, as procedures become codified, so you know the data that comes in, you can look at the decisions that have been made, you can codify them, they can become autonomous, um, and then the human goes up a layer and does oversight. Okay. And do you see that same framework playing out in uh, justice? Uh, Absolutely. Right. I mean, so do you see AI judges? Well, you already have things like that. I mean, so when you get a parking ticket for going too fast on the highway, there's a computer program that did that. There was no justice, there was no lawyer, right? You just got the parking ticket. Now, that's a minor thing, but again, you're beginning to see this sort of creeping datafication. Mm -hmm. So the algorithm and the data are making decisions in the norm case, not in the exceptional case. Do you see a role for humanity in this case? I, I, so humanity is the oversight. You don't want to get in that process because of efficiency and corruption. Perhaps the main problem in the world today is corruption. The humans are pulling things off the table that shouldn't. So you'd like it to be something that's a, 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 an accountable, um, auditable algorithm, because that's something that you know will perform uniformly. You can see exactly what it does but you need the human side, and I think human as oversight is the right thing. Just as we went back and said, are humans going to be the bricklayers or going to be the architects? You know, humans will not be actually laying the bricks anymore, but they do have a role in assessing whether the bricks are going in the right direction and was this the building we intended to build. So you see a world in which the AI is the corruption checker and the human is the humanity checker on the AI. Is well, that perhaps a, that's a way of doing it. So efficient systems that are, are at doing low-level activities with high-level supervision. Okay. So I'm going to throw one final question at you out of left field. Um, a couple years ago we had tried, in fact I did it with the MIT Media Lab folks, we tried to create an e-magna carta for the digital age. Right. So essentially instill in every single human some independent, autonomous sovereignty in a world that is now digitally enabled. It ran through some fits and starts. We tried to create a social, you know, an yeah, influencer yeah. engine and all yeah. that. Now we've got some real potential applications. You mentioned Estonia, uh, and uh, now Iceland has tried to create a uh, citizen's constitution, a digital constitution. Yep. New York State next week is going to vote on whether or not to revisit the New York State constitution. Uh-huh it's probably going to lose in a landslide the vote. But that's in part because the old entrenched interests are fighting to ensure pension rights, you know, to ensure yeah, what yeah, they've already got yeah. protected. I'm a little bit more Pollyannish on it. I wanted to get your opinion. I think there's a great opportunity. I'd love for us to create a digitally enabled constitution and maybe use New York State as an example. Can we, as humans, create a new constitution that could live on into the digital age instead of the archaic analog constitutions we have created? Do you imagine a world where we can reformulate the judiciary using some of these big data tools, these digital tools that you're talking about and building here? Do you think humanity is ripe for that? So I think that's one of the most interesting and positive potential things. Um, what will happen, almost guaranteed, is that you're going to get more 
data-driven autonomous systems, hopefully with human oversight. And as those evolve, we'll have a continuing discussion about rights, obligations, methods of adjudicating things, but it will evolve as the systems evolve. And I actually think that's the right thing to do it. You know, today's rights took 800 years to evolve. We don't have to take 800 years, but I don't think we know enough about how it works and what are the failure modes to do it today. I do think that's where we're headed. Um, you see GDPR in Europe, the privacy rights being an example of something like that. You see digital identity in several countries being a first step in that direction. And as those begin to get deployed and the tires are kicked and people begin to understand it, we will develop this Magna Carta. Well, you may be more Pollyannish than I. I mean, I've seen over the past 10 years a slowing and slowing of any movement by federal and state government. You say you're bringing most of your activities to Europe because you find them perhaps more agile and willing yeah. to embrace new technology. I feel like without some big citizens referendum to push government, we may forever be stuck in this standstill with an archaic constitution and no way to evolve the law. So I think that what will happen is, is that um, commercial services, not-for-profit services, um, and this sort of creeping datafication will just simply make the question irrelevant at some point. Well, Professor Pentland, you're certainly a pioneer. I think every lawyer <laughs> in America and around the world should be listening to what you are doing and your well, encroachment you. upon the profession. Um, uh, uh, but before we close today, I have one last question for you, and particularly because we want you involved in the evolving legal profession as much as possible. Um, if our listeners would like to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Well, I think the right thing to do is to go to law.mit.edu and there's places to send email and find resources, okay? Terrific. Great. Well, uh, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank Sandy Pentland, uh, professor at the MIT Media Lab and the originator of social physics and the human dynamics group here for joining us today. Uh, we also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you hear today, please uh, rate us on, uh, in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Bye.